Good morning, Grace. Take your Bibles and turn to the middle of them. We are starting our series on the book of Psalms today, and we're going to look at the first two verses of Psalm chapter 1. So it should be somewhere in the middle of your Bible. Let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you so much that your son is alive. Thank you for his life, that he lived the perfect life that your righteousness required, that we could never live because we're sinners and we're messed up people. Thank you for his death, which was perfect and satisfied your justice and righteousness. And he did that for us because we are sinners and we're messed up. We thank you for his resurrection and what that means for us. Thank you for the gospel message. Thank you, Father, that even as your son ascended to your right hand, he told the disciples to wait for the promise, which was the Holy Spirit you have given to your people And that happened on Pentecost Sunday, and today is Pentecost Sunday on the church calendar, God. And we ask you once again that your spirit would open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your word as we look at Psalm 1, that he would incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to getting selfish gains. So help us now as we look at your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we begin our new summer preaching series in the book of Psalms, which I've titled The Soundtrack of Our Lives. And the title comes from the fact that the people of God have been singing the Psalms and turning to them for hope and encouragement for thousands of years. In ancient Israel, the Psalms formed the hymn book of the temple. These songs that we're going to look at over the summer, a little bit into the fall, we will see that they capture all of the feelings and the emotions that the people of God experience in this world. And they're exactly what the people of God have been singing for centuries. In fact, as most of you know from experience, you can read a psalm and it feels like the author has been reading your diary, right? You read it and it resonates with you and you say, he, he's, he's expressing what my heart feels in this moment. So these songs that we're going to look at in the book of Psalms are like that classic mixtape of days gone by, if you know what I'm talking about. These psalms truly are the soundtrack of our lives. Here's a few quick introductory matters about the book of Psalms. The title in the Hebrew Bible is the book of praises, and it gets shortened in Hebrew to just praises. The title in Hebrew, praises, is related to the the Hebrew verb hillel, which means to praise, which you probably are familiar with, even though you didn't know it, because hillel forms part of the word that you know as hallelujah, The first part, the hallelujah, comes from the Hebrew word hallel, which means to praise. And the hallelujah, the yah part, is Lord. It's Yahweh. It's the shortened form of God's name, Yahweh. So hallelujah means praise the Lord, or more specifically, praise Yah, or praise Yahweh. Literally, though, hallelujah means y'all praise Yah. It's, it's a southern thing. The Hebrew language is more redneck than you even realized. It's more redneck than y'all know. And that's one reason why this Oki from Oklahoma loves the Hebrew language. 
Our English word psalm, though, comes from the word psalmos, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word mizmor. The Hebrew word mizmor is a title that is used in many of the superscripts or the headings that you'll see in the Psalms. In fact, look at Psalm 3. Maybe you have this heading in English. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. The word psalm there in Hebrew is the word mizmor. Mizmor means to sing praises accompanied by musical instruments. So a psalm in Hebrew, mizmor, is a song that you sing accompanied by musical instruments. Mizmor gets translated into Greek as psalmos, and then it gets translated into Latin as psalmus, and then into English as psalms. So you have the Hebrew word mizmor, which means to praise, to sing praises with musical instruments. When they translated that into the Greek Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, it was translated and they used the word psalmos, and then it got translated into Latin from Greek into psalmus, and then into English psalms. So that's where we get the English word psalms. Let's talk about the name Yahweh. We've already talked about that. God's covenant name in the Hebrew Bible is Yahweh. When when God appeared to Moses, Moses said, tell me who you are. He said, I am Yahweh. I am that I am. Yahweh means I am. I will be who I will be. And so whenever in the Old Testament you see the name Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is a clue that in Hebrew it's God's covenant name, Yahweh. So you'll hear me talk about Yahweh as we go through the Psalms. And that's because when I talk about that, that's, what, that's who God is. It's his name, Yahweh. With the word hallelujah that we talked about, you get the shortened form of Yahweh. Hallelujah means Yah, praise Yah, or Yahweh. You see this in many Hebrew names like Zechariah, Hezekiah. They're, They're taking the shortened form of Yahweh. So whenever you see Lord in all capital letters in the Old Testament, it's the English translators telling you this is God's covenant name. And you see it all over. If you just glance at your Bible right now and you see Lord on the pages in just the first five or six uh, psalms there, you see Lord in all capital letters. It's Yahweh. Let's talk about the genre of the book of Psalms. It's an anthology of Israelite poems and songs that that were composed and organized in stages over Israel's history. They were songs that were written by and sung by individuals and the community as they gathered at the temple or the sanctuary to worship the Lord, to worship Yahweh. They would sing these songs much like we do in here on Sunday morning. Collections like the book of Psalms were very common in the ancient Near East. So from Mesopotamia all the way to Egypt, nations would write songs and hymns and prayers to their respective gods. And Israel did the same thing. The difference, though, between Israel and her neighbors is that the book of Psalms consistently portrays Yahweh as the sovereign Lord, not just of Israel, but the sovereign Lord of the nations. In fact, you'll read over and over again in the Psalms that the Psalms are crying out, even to Israel's neighbors, you guys better bow your knee and worship Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, or else. And we'll see that in Psalm 2 in a few weeks. The nations are also called to worship Yahweh, because he is the sovereign Lord of the earth. 
Scholars have identified eight major forms of the Psalms. There are many uh, minor forms, but the, the main ones there are there, and the notes will be online, so you don't have to write these down, and I'll give you examples in the notes of, of each kinds of Psalms that there are. There are the Lament Psalms. These feature a petition to God in a time of trouble. The, the nation or an individual cries out to God for justice. They're, they're lamenting their sin and where they're at in their life. Psalm 6 is one of those. We'll look at that shortly. There are also declarative praise psalms. These feature an individual or a nation, the nation of Israel, praising God for deliverance from affliction, calamity, sickness, death. Psalm 40 is a popular one. Descriptive praise psalms feature an extensive description of the person and work of God. It's where the psalmist is talking about how God delivered them, and they usually begin and end with the word hallelujah or some form of that. The, the, probably the most popular descriptive praise psalms are Psalms 145 to Psalm 150. Well, there are also royal or Davidic, or Messianic psalms. These are psalms that focus on the Davidic covenant, the covenant that Yahweh made with King David in 2 Samuel 7. They're talking about the king of Israel who sits on his throne. But ultimately, these royal or Davidic psalms we know now are pointing forward to Jesus Christ who would be the King David par excellence, if you will, who would come one day and rule we're waiting for that to happen. So those are what those psalms are talking about. There are also pilgrim songs. These were the songs that were meant to, prov- to provide encouragement and hope as Israel made their way up to Zion, made their way up to Jerusalem to worship. They would sing these psalms together. Psalms 120 to 134 are the pilgrim, pilgrim psalms. They would rehearse the gospel as they made their way to worship in Jerusalem. And they would do that by singing the pilgrim psalms. There are also songs of Zion. These are songs that that praise Jerusalem or Zion as the place where Yahweh has set up his temple, where he reigns as king. There are also the Hallel Psalms, which we've already talked about the Hebrew word to praise. These songs would be sung at the three festivals of Israel during the new moon celebrations and during Passover. In fact, Jesus would have sung these psalms, Psalms 113 to 118. These would have been the songs that Jesus and the disciples would sing on the night of his betrayal before his crucifixion. Lastly, we have the wisdom psalms. These are psalms that give attention to us to to pay attention to God's law, to his commandments and the blessing that is found there. Psalm 1, which we'll look at part of today, is a wisdom psalm. Let's talk about the date and authors. Various people wrote the psalms over several centuries. David did write many of them. David did not write all of them. And I think we kind of come to believe that David is the one that penned every one of these, but he did not write every one of these. He wrote many of them. Scholars place the the timing of when these were written probably in the uh, pre-exilic and the post-exilic time of Israel's history, right before she went to Babylon and then when she came back. Lastly, let's talk about the collection and then we'll get into the text. The final and present arrangement that we have of the book of Psalms are divided into five books. So you'll see probably in your English Bible it says at the very top, book one. There are five books. The Psalms are put together. Book one goes from Psalm 1 to Psalm 41. And you can kind of see the arrangement as it's laid out there. 
All right, there's an introduction. All of that stuff that I just said will be online in the notes, and you can do a little further study there. Let's get busy with Psalm 1, and let's dig into the first two verses. Here's our big idea today, and it's this. Fight with delight. Our big idea for the sermon today that we're going to get out of verses 1 and 2 is that we should fight with delight. And I don't mean pick a fight with delight because delight is your enemy. What I mean is that as believers, we're encouraged through God's word in Psalm 1 to resist the pleasures of this world, to fight sin by delighting in God and delighting in his ways, which we find in his word. We are to fight sin with joy in Jesus Christ. The word of God and your delight in the God that is revealed in his word is your weapon to fight sin. That's what Psalm 1 is saying. That's what the author of Psalm 1 wants you to know. The author of Psalm 1 wants you to know that in order to live the blessed life, in order to have your best life now, you must fight sin with delight. The author of Psalm 1 came to your house today and had lunch with you and you sat down to watch some TV on the couch and you're flipping through the channels and you came across a health and wealth prosperity gospel preacher on TV The author of Psalm 1 would say, wait, go back. Go back to that channel. Did you hear what that guy or gal just said? He said that God promises us our best life now. He said that God wants us to be rich and free from sickness and disease and that we can be healthy and never get sick. And then the author of Psalm would tell you, that guy on TV is a liar. He's a deceiver. He is speaking about some God, but he's not talking about the God of the Bible. Oh, he's talking about Jesus, all right, but he's not talking about the Jesus of the Bible. And then the author of Psalm 1 would tell you, in order to live the blessed life, which a lot of these TV preachers like to talk about, in order to have your best life now, which a very smiling, happy preacher in South Texas likes to talk about, you don't need to send money into these people. He would tell you, in order to live your best life now, in order to be happy in this life, you must fight sin by delighting in God's word and the God who is found there. Let me show you where I'm getting all that. All that's right there in Psalm 1. Look with me at verses 1 through 2 and hear the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Right off the bat... The psalmist lets us in on a little secret of what it means to be a human being. And the secret is this. Every human being will take their cues and their directions in this life from either the world and the way the world thinks, or they will take their cues and directions from the Word of God. It's black and white. Every single human being born into this planet that grows up and lives will either listen to what the world says, or they will listen to what God's Word says. 
The psalmist is not saying, however, that every human being is like the typical man who never stops for directions. Right, ladies? We all know that men will drive around lost for hours before we will ever stop for directions. Sorry, ladies. That's how the fall has affected us. That's how Adam's sin in Genesis 3 has affected us. You have your problems. We men have ours. One of the things that we do is that we like to drive around and we refuse to ask for directions. In fact, a study was done a few years ago that revealed that on average, a man will drive around 276 miles per year because he won't stop for directions. But the psalmist in Psalm 1 is saying that regardless if you are a man or woman, even if you're a man who won't stop for directions, you will get your directions in life from either the world or the word of God. So Psalm 1 begins the Psalter, the book of Psalms, by contrasting the wicked with the righteous. Psalm 1 begins telling us begins by telling us that contrary to the false teachers that have cluttered our televisions, he tells us how we can live a blessed, a prosperous, a happy life. And that's what the Hebrew word blessed means there. It's Asher in verse 1. Asher in Hebrew means to have a joyful spiritual condition. It's having pleasure and joy and satisfaction and delight that comes from the fact that you are in covenant with Yahweh, that you're in covenant with God, that you have trusted in Jesus Christ and that you as a broken, messed up sinner had been made right with a holy God through atonement, namely the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be blessed to be happy, that you are aware of the fact that you have been made right with a holy God. And that brings joy and satisfaction and delight to your heart every single time you think about it. But right off the bat, as we look at Psalm 1, the reader is hit with the most important aspect of being a human being. How do you enjoy the blessings of God? How do you experience a blessed life? This is essential to being a human being. It is exactly what we were created for. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with question one, what is the chief end of man? Or what is man's purpose? What is your purpose for being here on the planet today? The answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. There's a reason the catechism starts with that question and answer. And there's a reason our mission statement here at Grace is that we exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. And Psalm 1 tells us how. Psalm 1 tells us how we can be happy. Psalm 1 tells us how we can live a blessed life life. And he does that by talking about walking and standing and sitting. Here's what I love about the author of Psalm 1. He's not interested in having a slick marketing campaign to push his ideas. The psalm begins with a focus on the negative. I mean, who does that? What car marketing campaign today would begin a commercial these days by talking about all the things that the car does not do? That's not how marketing works. 
Commercials and ads start by talking about all the positive things about something. This is why you should buy this car because it does this. Nobody comes out and says, you should buy this car because it doesn't do all these things. But that's not how the psalmist comes out in Psalm 1. He shows us that the righteous man, and that's a general man, the righteous man, woman, teen, child, those in covenant with the Lord, they're described first by what they shun, by what they say no to. The happy man, the man who enjoys God, is described in Psalm 1 first by what he shuns. And you see it there in verse 1. The negative godly man, the psalmist says, walks not in the counsel of the wicked. To walk means to live according to the advice of this world, the ungodly. It has to do with a certain way of thinking, forming plans, having a particular uh, mindset or outlook on life. To walk in the counsel of the wicked means that one allows a wicked person's evil advice or this world's advice to have an impact upon and then give direction in life. It has to do with this mindset, a way of thinking, a general outlook on life. The godly man does not walk according to the world. But then he says the godly man does not stand in the way of sinners. To stand means that a person stops. They're walking with the world and then they stop, they halt in order to consider the lifestyle and the advice of the sinner and the ungodly. To live according to the lifestyle of the world according to sinners means to be so closely associated with the world that we begin to join them in their behavior. So he says we don't walk, you don't stand. And then he says, nor do they sit in the seat of scoffers. To sit here means that a person gets comfortable and cozy with the world. That one belongs with them. That one is comfortably settled in the way of life that scoffs and scorns God's ways as he is revealed in his word. All of these phrases, to walk, to stand, and then to sit, suggest that the godly man, the happy man who is in covenant with God does not characteristically do these things. The psalmist would not deny that every human being is a sinner, the godly and the ungodly. We're all messed up because of Adam's sin. He's just saying that the godly people don't live like this every day, that there's not a pattern in their life where they begin to walk with the world and hear their ideas and and stop and think about it and say, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe God's ways are wrong. And the godly person doesn't then settle in like on a couch and get cozy with the way the world thinks. The godly man is a sinner, but they don't live and heed the advice and get comfortable with the world. They're different They're described by what they shun, by what they hate, by what they refuse, by what they say no to. The godly person says no to the world and yes to the word of God. It's like our youngest daughter, Piper, who's 15 months old now, and she's at that stage where she says no, but it's that cute no stage you know, where she starts saying, no, 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 no. And she doesn't quite grasp yet what it means because 
It's even cuter when I say things to her that she doesn't understand. And I say, Piper, do you want some Skittles? And she says, no, 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 no. She knows the word candy, so I can't say candy or she would say yes. But Piper, do you want some Skittles? No, 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 no. If she only knew how Skittles would rock her 15-month-old world, then she would say yes. What Piper doesn't know yet is that one day she's going to have to learn to say no to the world and to the counsel of the wicked and those who want her to get cozy with the world and the world system and the way this world thinks. The happy man or woman of God does not get cozy and comfortable with the world. The happy man or woman of God is countercultural. The happy man or woman of God is not stuck in neutral, looking for direction in life. The happy man or woman of God is different. They don't go with the flow, they go against the flow, and they don't get sucked in by the pleasures that this world has to offer them. Psalm 1, 1 is like Romans 12, 2, all dressed up and looking spiffy with Hebrew language. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Psalm 1, 1 and Romans 12, 2 are twin brothers. If the psalmist could read Romans 12 too, he'd say, hey, that guy plagiarized me. That's what I'm talking about. You don't walk, you don't stand, you don't sit with the world. You're not conformed to them, but you're transformed by the renewal of your mind because you delight in and meditate upon the word of God. That guy took my ideas, and he didn't document it in a footnote. Blessed is the man. Who does not conform to the world? Happy is the man who does not get sucked in by the world. Filled with joy is the man who does not let his heart drift from the Lord. This heart drift that Psalm 1 is warning against doesn't happen overnight though. You've got to understand that. You're not going to wake up one morning and say, I want nothing to do with God and the church and the Bible because it doesn't happen overnight. And it doesn't show up in the grossest form of sin possible. It doesn't ring your doorbell and say, hello, I'm porn and I want to ruin your life. Ding dong, hello, I'm meth. Come and try me and I want to destroy your life. I'm worry, I'm doubt, I'm fear. Let me destroy your life. It doesn't show up that way. It happens slowly over time as you begin to walk with the world, as you begin to stop to listen and think about what they're saying. It happens as you sit and get cozy with the world. It happens slowly over time as your friends and coworkers and family and maybe even your spouse tell you that you are out of touch because you believe in this book. They tell you that you won't be cool If you don't think a certain way. If they tell you to get with the times. Because people used to believe that. About that particular topic. But they don't anymore. And we're seeing it in our world. Everywhere. Christians are falling for the lies. That homosexuality is okay. And if you struggle with that. This is the place you need to be to fight that sin. Like we're all fighting all kinds of sin. But there are Christians who are now saying. I think homosexuality is okay. And gay marriage is fine. 
And there are Christians that are believing that abortion is okay. Christians fear not being liked by their peers, and they're beginning to compromise. And all of that is the reason why the psalmist starts his psalm off by focusing on the negative. Because the same thing was happening with the people of God in his day. We'll see that next week. But this is why he does not care about slick marketing strategies that say, don't be negative. He starts with the negative. The godly man shuns the world. The godly man says no to living like the world. But is that it? Is the blessed life obtained just by saying no and that's it? No. It's not enough to just say no. You must also say yes. You must say no and you must say yes with the same mouth. The psalmist and this preacher would tell you to fight with delight. That's how the godly person lives. The righteous person does not merely say no to the world's ways. Psalm 1 does not picture the righteous person here sorrowfully and begrudgingly resisting sin like, I can't give in to you right now. No, the psalmist does not describe the blessed life as being a life where we all have to eat liver and drink sour milk. The righteous person does not feel like he's missing out on the parties and the pleasures of the world. How does he live? He lives in contrast to the world, which is why you have the word but there, beginning verse 2. In Hebrew, it's showing us the contrast between the righteous person who lives according to God's ways and the wicked person who lives according to the world. The righteous man is drawn away from the world like a magnet because of the blessings that lie before him in the word of God in this book. The righteous man is drawn away from sin because of his desire for pleasure. True pleasure that's found here. See, the pressure comes from the world to the righteous person, but it's not the pressure of the world that causes them to give in. It's not the pressure from the world that directs their life. It's the pleasure that they get in God's word because it's in God's word that they see God himself. Look at verse two. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. What causes the psalmist to turn away from the allurements and enticements of the world? It's pleasure. It's not turn away from the world. Here's a glass of sour milk and some liver. Enjoy. No, it's pleasure that makes him say, I don't want that, but it is a different kind of pleasure. It's a pleasure that is rooted in God, that is centered in the gospel. It is not the pressure from the world to conform that moves and directs the righteous person's life. It's the pleasure that he gets out of God's word because it is in God's word that he sees God. What causes the psalmist to turn and walk away from all the pleasures that the world holds out to him is a superior pleasure. It is God himself. Because when he looks into God's word, it is there that he sees 
the greatest treasure that any human being could ever delight in. None other than God himself. Psalm 1 is telling us that as human beings, we will be moved by pleasure. By what brings us pleasure and joy. The godly, happy, blessed man takes his cues and directions from Yahweh's laws. The term law here in verse 2 in Hebrew is Torah, which means instruction or teaching or doctrine. Torah is all of Yahweh's teachings, all of God's word. From the portions of the Bible, of the Old Testament that the psalmist had when he was writing this psalm, all the way to everything that we have in God's word now. The thing that gets the godly man excited is God's word. The thing that works him up and stokes the fires of passion in his heart is not the pleasures that the world lays out before him, but it's the pleasure that he gets from God's word. He uses God's word to fight with delight, to say no to the pressure of the world because he says yes to the pleasure that he gets out of God's word. It is in God's word that the psalmist sees God, not some experience. The health, wealth, and prosperity preachers on our televisions tell us to find God in some mystical experience or some feeling. So Christians are running around for some experience like some magic gold dust falling out of the the ceiling, which is all over YouTube. You don't need to look for gold dust falling from the ceiling. I don't even want gold dust. Glitter gets everywhere. Have you ever tried to clean it up? I don't think God's interested in showering glitter down. I'm sorry, but on that video on YouTube, there's a guy up in the ceiling with a box of gold glitter shaking it. The camera just never goes up to look at him because Christians want something mystical. They want some feeling, some experience to validate their heart, what they're feeling. They want some gimmick, something falling from the sky. And everything that Christians need is found right here in this book. And if you don't believe me, tell me you would believe the Apostle Peter who walked with Jesus for three and a half years. Listen to what Peter says, who walked with Jesus. He of all people should know what we need to live the Christian life. And what does Peter say in 2 Peter 1 verses 3 through 4? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It means you don't need gold dust falling out of the sky. It doesn't mean you need some second experience of the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. You can't fit any more of Him in you. You don't need something. He's given you all things, everything that you need that pertains to what? Life and godliness. If you want to live a godly life, refuse the world, you don't want to walk the way the world walks, stand or sit with him, you have everything you need in God's word. And then he says, through knowledge. It's through his word that we get that knowledge. The knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. You have promises in this book. It's what you need for the Christian life. They're very great promises. And they're precious. 
so that, there's the purpose, through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You want to escape the pressure of the world, the corruption of the world, you come to God's word and you find these very great and precious promises. Everything you need to live the Christian life is right here in this book. You don't need anything else. Christian, you have been given everything that you need for life and godliness in this book. You don't have to chase some experience. You don't have to get some feeling. All you have to do is read. God's word is all you need. And if you really needed something extra, like what prosperity preachers tell you, then notice what the Lord told Joshua after he took over leading the nation of Israel after Moses died. Think about this. This was a huge moment for Joshua. There's how many hundreds of thousands, if not million Israelites there. Moses has died. Joshua, you're the guy. How do you think he felt in that moment? And Yahweh did not come to Joshua and tell him that he needed some experience or some feeling or some magic gold dust falling out of the sky in order to live the Christian life and to lead the nation of Israel. What did the Lord say? Joshua 1, 6 through 8. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Already there's a promise there. You shall cause this nation to inherit. Already there's a promise for you. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law, teaching, instruction, that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, meaning don't walk, stand, or sit with the world that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. What the Lord is saying to Joshua is that you don't need all the bells and whistles, Joshua. All you need is the law of Yahweh. All you need is the word of God, a delight in it and meditation upon it. And we're going to look at that next week. That's all you need, Joshua, to live the blessed life. Say no to sin in the world. That's obedience. And say yes to his word. Sam Storms captures this beautifully when he says, Believe it or not, happiness or blessedness can be found in something negative. There is joy in saying no. But simply saying no to the ways of the world is only half the prescription for happiness and not even the better half. When our no stands alone and isolated, our resolve to rejoice in God will gradually erode under the incessant force of temptation and trial. God's prescription for our happiness to his glory is dependent on a yes to the beauty and splendor of his word. We can't afford to stop with detesting the ways of the world. We must delight in the law of the Lord. Refusing to eat the food of folly and wickedness will not in itself fill our spiritual bellies. We need the meat of God's word, the balanced diet of the whole counsel of God. And that's why the psalmist says his delight is in the law of the Lord. You don't walk, you don't stand, you don't sit and get cozy with the world. Your delight is in the law of the the, the Lord. 
To delight in the law of the Lord means, like Psalm 119.11, we say, your word I have stored up in my heart that I might not sin against you. To rejoice in his testimony more than riches, as Psalm 19.14 says. To value his word more than thousands of pieces of silver and gold, Psalm 119.72. To savor God's word like the sweetness of honey, Psalm 119.103. But here's the reality. If you're like me, you don't love God's word as much as you should. You don't delight in God's word as much as you should. If you're like me, sometimes it's just much easier to turn on the TV, isn't it? Sometimes we would rather watch TV than read his word. Sometimes we'd rather read other books than read his word. Sometimes we'd rather get on Facebook and Twitter than go to his word. I know that struggle. Sometimes I would rather read a commentary about the Bible than the Bible. This is all of our struggle. So what do we do to get that delight in his word? Let me give you some homework that will help you. Psalm 119.36 says, Incline my heart to your testimonies. So I want to encourage you this week. I know some of you struggle with memorization. These are six words. You can handle it, I think. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Incline my heart to your testimonies. And just keep saying that and praying that all week long. And memorize that. Psalm 119.36. Incline my heart to your testimonies. God, bend my heart to love your word more than Facebook. Bend my heart to love your word more than the TV. God, bend my heart to love your word because it's there that I see you. It's there that I hear the gospel promises which are precious and very great. God, bend my word. So do that this week. What if we as a church all week long are praying, God, incline my heart to your testimonies? It will be great because, you know, you ever go to church and hear a sermon about something and you haven't been doing that and then you feel guilty and a little ashamed. We've all been there, right? I don't want you to feel guilty or ashamed at all. I don't want you to feel guilty by this sermon. I want you to leave here loving God's word. Not to feel shame, shame because you haven't read it in a week or two. And I don't want you to feel guilty or shameful next week as we talk about memorization and meditation. Which is why I'm tipping you off in advance and saying, start memorizing Psalm 119.36. So that when you come in here next week and we talk about memorization and meditation, you'll feel, I've been doing that the last week. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Our happiness is directly related to what we think and feel about God's word. The health, wealth, and prosperity preachers that sadly fill television today do not know what true happiness is. True happiness, being blessed, is not coming to Jesus so that you can be rich. It's not coming to Jesus so that you will never get sick. True happiness comes when you are more concerned about the paper in this book than you are concerned about the paper that is in your wallet. If you want to fight sin, You must be captivated by God's word and the God who is revealed in his word. And that's why the memory verses that we put on the back of our uh, sermon notes every week are called fighter verses. Because you fight sin with a joy that is rooted in the truth of God's word. You fight with delight. Or as... One of my heroes, John Piper, says, I know of no other way to triumph over sin long term than to gain a distaste for it 
because of a superior satisfaction in God. That means fight with delight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that you have revealed yourself. We can see you and know what you're like and who you are and how to be made right with you in your word. And yet, God, some of us look for magic dust falling from the sky, gold dust. God, some of us need to blow the dust off of our Bibles and begin reading it again. And would you cause that to happen by the power of your spirit? God, we pray for Tim and Tiffany Lanier as they translate your word to the Tanguat language, if that's what it is, God, I can't remember. Bless them today. Protect them. Give them mercy, speed, and insight and wisdom to translate your word into that language so that those people can delight in it the way we should. Oh God, help us to be a people of your word. Here on Pentecost Sunday, God, stir up our hearts by the power of your spirit and we cry out as a church, incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to getting gain. In Jesus' name, amen.